In our world of over seven and a half billion people, there's more that connects us than divides us. But as individuals, we are all unique. My love of the science of natural history and of human behaviour has been influenced most over the years by three people. The first was my zoology lecturer at Edinburgh University, Professor Aubrey Mannon, and the other two are probably better known to you, Sir David Attenborough and Charles Darwin, two great men who lived and worked about 150 years apart, but both have made an enormous impact on our understanding of who we are and where we fit into this great world of ours. My starting point is Charles Darwin. Who was he? What influenced him? And how did he become the father of natural selection? Let's find out. I'm Leanne Walker, and this is Wonder, the show where each week I bring you tales of wonder and curiosity from across the globe about the people, places and events that shape our daily lives. There are plenty of books and other written material about Charles Darwin, his life, his work and his writing, so rather than use that, I thought I would take a different route today and use the words of the man himself. I'll be reading excerpts from the autobiography of Charles Darwin, edited by his son Francis Darwin, from the life and letters of Charles Darwin. The excerpts are a small snapshot of the overall book, and if you want to know more or download the book yourself, you can do so at Project Gutenberg. A link will be in the show notes. Charles Robert Darwin was the fourth child born to Robert Waring Darwin and Susanna Wedgwood. He was a child of wealth and of privilege, who loved to explore nature. And so to Charles Darwin in his own words. I was born in Shrewsbury on February the 12th, 1809. My mother died in July 1817 when I was a little over eight years old. And it's odd that I can remember hardly anything about her except her deathbed, her black velvet gown and her curiously constructed work table. In the spring of the same year, I was sent to a day school in Shrewsbury where I stayed a year. I'd been told that I was much slower in learning than my younger sister Catherine and I believe that I was in many ways a naughty boy. By the time I went to this day school, my taste for natural history and more especially for collecting was well developed. I tried to name the plants and collected all sorts of things shells, coins and minerals. In the summer of 1818, I went to Dr Butler's Great School in Shrewsbury and remained there for seven years till midsummer 1825 when I was 16 years old. Nothing could have been worse for the development of my mind than Dr Butler's school, as it was strictly classical, nothing else being taught except a little ancient geography and history. The school as a means of education to me was quite simply a blank. Early in my school days, a boy had a copy of The Wonders of the World, which I often read and disputed with other boys about the veracity of some of the statements. And I believe that this book first gave me a wish to travel in remote countries, which was ultimately fulfilled by the voyage of the Beagle. As I was doing no good at school, my father wisely took me away at a rather earlier age than usual and sent me in 1825 to Edinburgh University with my brother, where I stayed for two years. My brother stayed only one year at the university, so that during the second year I was left to my own resources, and this was an advantage, for I became well acquainted with several young men fond of natural science. After having spent two sessions in Edinburgh, my father perceived, or he heard from my sisters, that I didn't like the thought of being a physician, so he proposed that I should become a clergyman. He was very properly vehement against my turning into an idle sporting man, 
which then seemed my probable destination. As it was decided I should be a clergyman, it was necessary that I should go to one of the English universities and take a degree. I went to Cambridge after the Christmas vacation early in 1828. During the three years which I spent at Cambridge, my time was wasted, as far as the academical studies were concerned, as completely as at Edinburgh and at school. No pursuit at Cambridge was followed with nearly so much eagerness or gave me so much pleasure as collecting beetles. I have not as yet mentioned a circumstance which influenced my whole career more than any other. This was my friendship with Professor Henslow. Before coming up to Cambridge, I'd heard of him from my brother as a man who knew every branch of science and as accordingly prepared to reverence him. His knowledge was great in botany, entomology, chemistry, mineralogy and geology. His strongest taste was to draw conclusions from long-continued minute observations. His judgment was excellent and his whole mind well-balanced. During my last year at Cambridge, I read with care and profound interest Humboldt's personal narrative. This work, and Sir John Herschel's introduction to the study of natural philosophy, stirred up in me a burning zeal to add even the most humble contribution to the noble structure of natural science. No one or a dozen other books influenced me nearly so much as these two. Upon the whole of the three years which I spent at Cambridge were the most joyful in my happy life, for I was then in excellent health and almost always in high spirits. On returning home from a short geological tour in North Wales, I found a letter from Henslow informing me that Captain Fitzroy was willing to give up part of his own cabin to any young man who would volunteer to go with him, without pay, as naturalist to the voyage of the Beagle. I was instantly eager to accept the offer, but my father strongly objected, adding the words, If you can find any man of common sense who advises you to go, I will give my consent. I wrote that evening and refused the offer. On the next morning, whilst out shooting, my uncle, Josiah Wedgwood, sent for me, offering to drive me over to Shrewsbury and talk with my father, as my uncle thought it would be wise in me to accept the offer. My father always maintained that he was one of the most sensible men in the world, and he at once consented in the kindest manner. I had been rather extravagant at Cambridge, and to console my father I said that I should be deuced clever to spend more than my allowance whilst on board the Beagle. But he answered with a smile, but they tell me you are very clever. The voyage of the Beagle has been by far the most important event in my life, and has determined my whole career. I have always felt that I owe to the voyage the first real training or education of my mind. I was led to attend closely to several branches of natural history, and thus my powers of observation were improved, though they were always fairly well developed. In September 1831, I paid a flying visit with Fitzroy to the Beagle at Plymouth, thence to Shrewsbury to visit my father and sisters and for a long farewell. On December 27th, the Beagle finally left the shores of England for her circumnavigation of the world. We'd made two earlier attempts to sail, but were driven back each time by heavy gales. I need not here refer to the event of the voyage where we went and what we did, as I have given a sufficiently full account in my published journal. I'll leave Darwin's words here for a moment, just to fill in some of the detail of the Beagle's five-year voyage. In December of 1831, the HMS Beagle left Plymouth, England, and set a course south, which took it around Cape Horn at South America's southernmost tip. It then turned northwards, following the west coast of South America to the Galapagos Islands. 
crossed the Pacific Ocean via Tahiti before going on to New Zealand and to Australia. The Beagle continued across the Indian Ocean to Mauritius, around the southern tip of Africa, and then again crossed the Atlantic before heading northwards back to England. In September 1835, the HMS Beagle arrived at the Galapagos Islands. It's there that Darwin encountered a remarkable array of species. Here he made numerous observations, collected many specimens of plants and birds, and observed subtle variations in mockingbirds and finches. He also noted the variations in shell shape among tortoises that inhabit different habitats. Upon his return to England, Darwin described his many findings from his years aboard the HMS Beagle in the five-volume work, The Zoology of the Voyage of the HMS Beagle. Now back to Darwin's words again, covering the period on his return to England in 1836. Following my return, the two years and three months hence were the most active ones which I've ever spent, though I was occasionally unwell and so lost time. I began preparing my journal of travels, which was not hard work, as my manuscript journal had been written with care, and my chief labour was making an abstract of my more interesting scientific results. Charles Darwin married his cousin Emma Wedgwood on the January 29, 1839, and they lived in London for the early part of their marriage. As he said, During the three years and eight months while we resided in London, I did less scientific work though I worked as hard as I possibly could and during any other equal length of time in my life. This was owing to frequently recurring unwellness and to one long and serious illness. The greater part of my time, when I could do anything, was devoted to my work on coral reefs, which I had begun before my marriage and of which the last proof sheet was corrected in May 1842. In 1842, Charles Darwin and his wife moved from London to Downhouse in Kent, about 15 miles outside of London, and that became their family home. In the early part of 1844, my observations on the volcanic islands visited during the voyage of the Beagle were published. And then from September 1854, I devoted my whole time to arranging my huge pile of notes, to observing and to experimenting in relation to the transmutation of species. Early in 1856, Lyell—this was Darwin's good friend Charles Lyell, the influential geologist—they had been introduced by Fitzroy, the captain of the Beagle. It was Lyell's geological observations of small changes over time that influenced Darwin's theory of evolution. Lyell advised me to write out my views pretty fully, and I began at once to do so on a scale three or four times as extensive as that which was afterwards followed in my origin of species. Yet it was only an abstract of the materials which I had collected, and I got through about half the work on this scale. But my plans were overthrown, for early in the summer of 1858, Mr Alfred Wallace, who was then in the Malay archipelago, sent me an essay on the tendency of varieties to depart indefinitely from the original type and this essay contained exactly the same theory as mine. Mr Wallace expressed the wish that if I thought well of his essay, I should send it to Lyle for perusal. The circumstances under which I consented, at the request of Lyle and Hooker, to allow an abstract of my manuscript, together with a letter to Asa Gray, to be published at the same time with Wallace's essay, are given in the Journal of the Proceedings of the Linnean Society of 1858.
I was at first unwilling to consent, as I thought Mr. Wallace might consider my doing so unjustifiable, for I did not know then how generous and noble was his disposition. Mr. Wallace's essay was admirably expressed and quite clear. Nevertheless, our joint productions excited very little attention. This shows how necessary it is that any new view should be explained at considerable length in order to arouse public attention. So in September 1858, I set to work by the strong advice of Lyle and Hooker to prepare a volume on the transmutation of species, but was often interrupted by ill health. It was published under the title of The Origin of Species in November 1859. Though considerably added to and corrected in the later editions, it has remained substantially the same book. It is no doubt the chief work of my life. It was from the first highly successful. The first small edition of 1,250 copies was sold on the day of publication, and a second edition of 3,000 copies soon afterwards. The success of the origin may, I think, be attributed in large part to my having long before written two condensed sketches, and to my having finally abstracted to a much larger manuscript, which was itself an abstract. Although in the origin of species the derivation of any particular species is never discussed, yet I thought it best, in order that no honourable man should accuse me of concealing my views, to add that by the work, light would be thrown on the origin of man and his history. It would have been useless and injurious to the success of the book to have paraded without giving any evidence my conviction with respect to his origin. Therefore my success as a man of science, whatever this may have amounted to, has been determined, as far as I can judge, by complex and diversified mental qualities and conditions. Of these, the most important have been the love of science, unbounded patience in long reflecting over any subject, industry in observing and collecting facts, and a fair share of invention as well as of common sense. With such moderate abilities as I possess, it is truly surprising that I should have influenced to a considerable extent the belief of scientific men on some important points. Charles Darwin died on 19th of April 1882 from a heart attack at home in Downhouse. He was buried in Westminster Abbey in London, an honour bestowed upon only a few people and recognition of the enormous contribution he made to our understanding of evolution that continues to this day. Throughout his life, Darwin's keen observation, curiosity and determination allowed him to make contributions in areas of science not previously connected. His work continues to provide the basis for new research, new discoveries and debates, which is, after all, the hallmark of great science and of progress. Long may it continue. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. For more information on the topic covered, please visit injustoneday.com forward slash wonder, where you'll find the show notes, links and sources. I've also put together a PDF of information about today's topic. To get that, head on over to www.injustoneday.com forward slash a scientific life. Keep in touch via Facebook, In Just One Day, Twitter, One Day Two, or email hello at injustoneday.com. And until next time, have a great day.